Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Psachim, daf mem vav, page 46. So our daf today has two Mishnayot, and uh, we're each going to take one and discuss the Gemara on it, um, each on each of them a bit. The first one is as follows. Batsik hacharish, imish ki yotibo shechmitz hareze asur. So it's an interesting phrase here, but take hacharesh, def do, and we're going to explain what that means in a moment. Def do, um, if you have anything that is similar to it at that same time that it's being made, so that you basically have, you know, two doughs at the same time, let's say, and one is being more obviously leavened than the other one, the other one being this def do, hareze asur, then the defto itself is also treated as leavened. And we'll come back to this, the whole discussion and the case in a moment. I just want to explain this phrase, defdo. So the, the easiest explanation, I guess, is that it's dough for which it is difficult to ascertain whether or not it has been leavened. Meaning, uh, if I were making bread now, I don't mean matzah, I mean real bread, you know, did I forget to put in the yeast? So there could be a point along the way of it's rising where it's not rising well. And I don't know if it's not rising well because the room is too cold or because the yeast is dead or who knows what, or because literally I forgot to put it in, right? So in any case, the, what, what that means is that you're looking at a dough that is not rising well and you don't know if it's been leavened or if it hasn't been leavened. Um, and the idea is that it's, or again, in the idea of why is it called deaf, perhaps it's because uh, the same way that somebody who is, you know, halachically or in the Torah, hacharesh, the one who is deaf, is really considered deaf mute, meaning one who cannot really communicate. It, this is an era beside, before saying sign language, and there's a lot of misconceptions over what this meant to begin with, meaning in terms of deafness. But the idea, just as the the expression when it comes to the dough, is we're talking about a dough that is not communicating, so to speak, that in fact it has leavening in it. So then when the when the Mishnah rather says that we have two doughs next to each other and you can see that one is rising, then the assumption is that this other one was also made with leavening or it is also undergone that same process because they're next to each other. Um, and so it, it just happens not to be doing as good of a job of rising. I just want to give a few explanations as to why it's called defto or what it really means. So Rashi, you know, he's our go-to commentator, and that's exactly how the the basic understanding that I've just uh, explained already. That's the basic uh, basic um, intuitive meaning, I guess, of why it would be called batzika charish. But another understanding is as follows: that if the Mishnah is referring to the difference that can be actually heard, which I think is very interesting, that the dough itself, when dough has become leavened versus dough that has not become leavened, the leavened dough, if you tap it, it will make a sound that the not leavened dough will not make. Now, I kind of want to go do, um, what's a not, not a taste test experiment, a sound test experiment between two different doughs, and that's never going to happen. But I'd really like to see what exactly is this tapping sound that you could hear it and say, aha, that's the leavened one, and that one's not the leavened one. Um, and then when it when you make when you tap it and it doesn't make a sound, then that's your deaf dough. That's Rambam. And another view, this is the Rivid. The Rivid is 
um, a contemporary of the Rambam and often a bar plugta with him, meaning someone who comes and argues against him, right? So another option is that the levendo makes a low sound, that with a levendo makes the low sound like a deaf person, as compared to matzah, which makes a clear sound. Now, again, does that mean when you break it, when you tap it? I'm not sure. Um, I'm, and I w have to admit that I'm looking at a summary of commentaries as opposed to looking at all of them inside. Uh, so I don't want to go too far into them and, or, or present as if I've delved further than I have. But I do think that the fact that each one of these Rishonim is struggling to understand why is this called defto, uh, I think is, is a valuable enterprise in and of itself. Um, and lastly, the Ramban says that the same way that one who is deaf or hard of hearing anyway will process that sound slowly, so too the dough itself becomes leavened slowly. Again, this is a dough that if it's, if it's in proximity to another dough that is leavened, it is presumed to be leavened. It's just rising slower. It's not that it's not leavened at all. So the idea is, that, you know, if you just pay attention and you pay a little more, you know, you listen a little more carefully, then you'll hear it uh, or you'll see it uh, eventually slowly rise. Um, and then again, the idea is that it, the, the dough itself does not become leavened in the typical manner. It's moving more slowly. It's not what you expect. And by the same token, the deaf person is not Again, a deaf person in, from the Gemara's perspective, not what we know about deafness today, um, is one who does not process information in the typical manner because, you know, it's that's already, I would say, moving further afield in terms of how metaphorical are we going to go in understanding why this is called deafness. My, my, the last one there I don't like as much because it doesn't actually pertain so much to sound, which all the others... Well, maybe not all the others, but they're trying, right? They're trying to understand why would you call deaf, why would you call a dough that is rising slowly, why would you call it deaf? Why not call it slow? Why not call, I mean, there's so many other things we could think of. Um, you know, why not call it dead for that matter, right? A dough that doesn't rise. Um, but this is, this is the expression. And so be it. I, I wonder if there is, you know, we could figure out some linguistic something from the time of the Mishnah that, that would make this make yet another level of sense. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I wish it was something linguistic because I do think, you know, even when you're sort of reciting, uh, you know, or explaining some of the different understandings of why it's called deaf dough, there's something about like no one in modern times would call it this with any of the explanations that were given. So I would, on that point, I would note that I don't read any of these interpretations to being a put down, right? Like, I don't think that there's any slur intended here. I don't think that the presumption that deafness is different from hearing, like, I don't think it goes that far. I, I think that there's, uh, nowadays, we're much more sensitive to um, both to the variety of human experience and also to what the names might then mean in a taken into a different context. Here, I think that quite literally, it's an expression that's used for, for dough that is rising slower, and that's what it means. So then when the, when the commentaries want to understand, but why, why is it called this? That's when we get into the hot water of, of the different implications of deafness that, again, don't really apply to that. I, I would agree with that. In other words, I think how it's set up in the Mishnah is one level, the explanations are a different level. Yes, exactly. Thank you for, for distilling that so well. Um, okay, so then the Gemara says, the Gemara gets into a whole 
discussion that feels so far afield the, from the mission itself. What happens if you don't have another dough there, right? Because that, of course, is the obvious question. The, the Mishnah says, if you have another dough there that's rising, you can assume that this one is usher. And then it stops and there's no more Mishnah. And you want to say, okay, but so what happens if you don't have another dough rising there? Do you assume that this is leavened or not leavened? I'm a Rabbi Abau, I'm a Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. So if you have no dough that's similar to it there in the same place, the, the position here is that the leavening will occur in the amount of time that it takes a person to walk from Migdal Nunya, which uh, I would say is, I'm looking at a map, it's on the western side of the Kinaret, of the Sea of the Galilee. I would say it's like there's a a bump there on the far west point, and then you go down from there, um, I guess eastward or southeastward, um, to Tiberia, to Tiberias. And that dis- that distance is a meal. A meal is 2,000 cubits, and in that amount of time, your dough should rise. And if it doesn't rise, I suppose, then the implication is that it doesn't, it never had any kind of leavening. Right? But if it does rise, or even if it rises just a little bit, then that's your, then that's your measuring stick, you know, your time zone to know to was there leavening here or not. Okay. I, you know, it's the other thing I think that's important to mention here is that in terms of the commentators, at least the Gemara doesn't mention it straight out. This is where we're going to sort of see the first introduction of that 18 minutes, right? That, you know, this timing that we're talking about here is later going to inform, or I guess we'll talk about later, how long does it actually take for something to become chamed? It's interesting to me that it's not sort of like addressed with an actual time. Right. Well, I feel like this is, you know, let's think back to the beginning of Brachot and we're talking about the time of day and when the dog brays in the night and things like that. And that we've got some external uh, realia, something that will tell us this is how long something would take because they didn't have wristwatches or digital clocks or that kind of thing, right? So then you say, well, how long did it take? Did it take 18 minutes to do that walk? Did it take 24 minutes to do that walk? Did it take 22 minutes to do that walk? There's, this is part of what the commentary discussion of exactly how long is it? And I'm guessing that the original time was, you'll forgive me, much less precise than anything we've got today. That I would agree with. I don't think it was on a stop clock the way it is in matzo factories. I also think <laughs> one thing that the Gemara loves to do is, it, and Mishnah, is it always tries to, but more the Gemara, it always tries to link halachot together. So in other words, if you have to explain one thing, it's really an opportunity to explain a group of things together, you know? And so that's why you get the thing of what are the four things that go by the timing of the mill. Um, and so I think that's kind of the idea also. So often the explanations don't seem to be necessarily in the most direct way or the way that we would explain it, but it's really just a way of linking or categorizing things and making things a little bit more interconnected and I think ultimately easier to remember. Yes. I just want to make one more comment, which is that, you know, this this deaf dough that you think you're not sure, is it going to rise or is it not going to rise? What happens after you've given it that 18 minutes or 22 minutes or 24 minutes, you've walked from um, Migdal Nunya to Tiveria and somehow you, or you walked, I, I don't know, right? You have to get back right, to make, to, to do that amount of time. Um, and now what happens to that dough? And the answer seems to be 
that if it, if you've given it that amount of time, you can't use it after that. After that amount of time, you are dealing with leavened bread, even if it wasn't near a different loaf that was also leavened. Right. I think that's a good point. Um, and, uh, you know, I just thought this again, if I was going to structure the Mishnah, right, to jump from where we did before about the bowl with the cracks um, to this one, also just from a structural point of view, seemed interesting to me. Yes, I agree with that, because if we're talking about all the different, literally the crevices that Hametz could get into where it's kind of disregarded. And here we're talking about something that if you handle it quickly enough, it won't be leaven. But if you handle it too slowly, then it becomes leaven. Yes, it seems much more um, front and center in terms of the baking of matzah than anything we talked about yesterday. I agree right. with that. And ultimately really includes some very fundamental concepts about chametz and how long it takes for things to become chametz. Like it's really using based on this case, which again is not the straightforward case, but it touches on a lot of other issues. So uh, that was interesting to me. Um, I'm going to go through the second Mishnah here. Um, and it begins as follows. So the question is here, how do we separate Chala from dough that is already in the state of Tuma um, on Yom Tov, on Chag of uh, on, on Pesach, right? So we know that when we bake bread and we bake, you know, a certain amount, uh, generally we use today sort of the five pound rule that we have to separate a particular portion of it um, to give to the Kohanim. And Chala itself, you know, has a particular type of Kedusha the same way that um, Truma does. So if your dough is Tameh, you still have to separate it and you give it to the Kohen, but the Kohen is then going to um, get rid of it. Um, and the Kohen can use it, you know, he can just the same way with Truma, that's Tameh, he can still benefit from it, right? He can burn it to use his fuel. So the same is true for Chala. So that's why this is really a question. So how do we separate this um, from dough that is tame on Yom Tov? Um, and again, this is presumably that you are, the question here is, is that if you're baking matzah, right? Once you separate out that challah dough, that, that piece of dough sort of gets left and put to the side. Is it going to become chametz? And that's obviously a big problem. So Rabbi Eliezer, his solution is Rabbi Eliezer, loti shame ad right? The woman who is, uh, taking it shouldn't designate it or shouldn't call it a portion of challah until it's actually um, baked, right? So in other words, you're normally not really allowed to bake um, a tame, like something that's tame. You wouldn't normally do that. Um, that was already designated as challah because that type of bread or that loaf really can't be eaten about anybody. But he says, in this case, what do you do? You bake everything and then you sort of take challah afterwards. And this is sometimes actually a practical thing that sometimes people will bake and forget to take challah. But here he's saying, right? Like, this is the way to do it. That even though normally you wouldn't bake the, you know, tame loaf, here we're going to tell you to bake it. And then presumably by the act of baking, right? No more. It's not going to become uh, chametz anymore. Um, ben uh, Betero, Mer Ben Betero says something else. He says, right? Put the challah, take, you know, separate it out. And put it in cold water, right? We know that if you if it's too cold, it's not going to leaven, right? So we know that with yeast that it doesn't work as well if the room is actually cold. And I'm sure for you who are challah bakers, right? I find actually in the winter when my kitchen is colder, it is harder sometimes to get. I've had some mishaps where my dough has not actually risen. I'm a Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua has a different solution. 
So I actually thought Rabbi Yeshua's statement is pretty amazing. And he basically says, this isn't in the category of chametz when we talk about right? We know that there's sort of three isurim for chametz, right? You can't eat it, you can't see it, and you can't find it. And so obviously no one's going to be eating this, but this type of chametz, we don't worry about the fact it doesn't really fall under the category when the Torah is talking about not seeing and not finding it. This is not what it's talking about. Right. So she should separate it and sets it aside uh, until the evening, meaning till the end of the Chag, till the end of Yonzov. And if it becomes Chamez, OK, then it became Chamez. In other words, there's no consequence if it becomes chametz. I thought this opinion was amazing, right? Because he's basically saying, yeah, just do what you normally do, separate it out, and like if it becomes chametz, it becomes chametz. But this is not really the chametz that the Torah is actually talking about. Um, so to me, this was a really interesting uh, Mishnah. So now the Gemara is going to continue. There's actually a lot on this Gemara. I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, the first concept that the Gemara introduces um, you know, Rabbi Yeshua obviously has the opinion that you're not, you're basically, you know, you're not responsible for this challah that you separate out that becomes chametz. But Rabbi Eliezer disagrees. And he says that you have to bake the dough from the challah, which was separated so it doesn't become chametz. Um, and so the Gemara starts off by trying to understand exactly what, what are they disagreeing about? And in their explanation of that, uh, they introduce this concept of Tovat Hana'a, right? This is the first idea, which I guess in English would be the benefit of the art school translated as the benefit of gratitude. Um, I'm not sure that's a good translation, but I just wanted to do a little bit of a who's who. And we will see this concept of Tovat Hana'a later on. Um, so I just want to say, I saw the benefit of discretion. Okay. That's also, I think, a non-helpful English translation. So benefit of gratitude. I agree with you. They're a little right, bit clunky. A little bit clunky. They're, they're a little but bit clunky. What the idea here is that the owner of this dough, right, has to give chala to the Kohen, right? And he, you know, has some rights, meaning what are those rights? He gets to choose which Kohen he's going to give it to, right? There's even, you know, that he could accept a little bit of a small money or something from the Kohen, or if he gives it to a relative, for giving this. Um, and so basically, because he has this right, right, he does still have sort of some control over the chal itself, even though it's ultimately going to be a gift to the kohanim, that's what the idea of the uh, of the tovat hana'a is, right? He still has, there's a little bit of benefit that the owner still retains here. So I thought that was one interesting concept here that the Gemara introduces. Um, the second one is, we get back to Ho'il again, right? Remember, we mentioned this a couple dapim ago. And the concept of Ho'il was that we have a halakhic scenario and we try to figure something out about it on a about a condition, right? A since, since this might happen, we're going to rule this following way. Um, and so one of the ideas here that they introduce here is that really what they're fighting about, right? They reject the idea that they're following, that they're arguing about and the Gemara comes to the conclusion that really what they're disagreeing about is, is Ho'il. To Rabbi Eliezer Sabar, right? So what does Rabbi Eliezer hold? 
because since if he wants the owner of the um of this dough he could you know go to somebody and he could basically annul this dough as chal right he still has some control he could still take away the designation of it being chala mamonehu right so it's really considered his property still but rabbi yeshua sabar lo amrinan holio rabbi yeshua says no we don't actually say hola, right? We're not going to take into account the possibility that maybe the owner would actually retract that this could actually be chala. And so what this really means is, is that the chala is not really ever considered the owner's actual property. It's just he's giving, keeping it into his, he keeps it in his possession, even if it may become chamet, right? And so that's why Rabbi Yeshua rules basically that you know, so fine, he separates the challah. It's not really his position. And if some of it becomes chamet, uh, some of it becomes chamet. And according to Rabbi Yeshua, right, he would not even allow what Rabbi Eliezer says, which is baking the, you know, the, the challah first, the loaf first, the, the matzah first, and then designating it as as challah. Because, um, because it's totally unfit. You're not allowed to eat it at all. So I thought it was interesting that this idea of hoil gets introduced again. And then the Gemara goes through, you know, trying to basically apply the concept of whole in a couple of other scenarios. So itmar, right? It's been said. Ha'ofa miyom tov l'chol, right? So let's say we have somebody who bakes on yom tov for weekday use, right? So let's say Chag is on a Tuesday and you decide you're going to bake something in the afternoon, but you knowingly are baking knowing that you're going to have it for Tuesday night or for Wednesday morning. Rav Chisa, Mar Rav Chisa says, no, you actually get Malkut for that, right? Because you basically did a malach on Yom Tov, right? That was for after Yom Tov, and you're not allowed to do that. Rabbi says, you don't get Malkut, you don't get lashes. So the Gemara is now going to explore this. Rav Chisa says he gets lashes. Because why does he say you do get lashes, right? Because wouldn't we say, right? Maybe we could say, wait, but maybe guests are going to come visit him, right? And then, therefore, this person could just serve this food, right? Rabbi says, we don't do lashes, why? Because we do say this, we use this principle of hoel. In other words, uh, what's happening here, let me make sure that I explain this. Well, the principle of hoel would say that since guests maybe could come, right, and eat this food on Yom Tov, right? The, this this act of you know this this malacha of baking this food or preparing this food really could be looked at as preparation of food on Yom Tov itself, and therefore you really you didn't actually do um, anything uh, you didn't actually do anything wrong. So according to Rabbah, the reason why you wouldn't get latches is because of hoa. Maybe somebody's going to come and visit you, and you're going to be able to uh, you know that you you're just going to end up using the food. Whereas Rav Chista does not hold by Ho'il here. He's not going to allow for this possibility that maybe something about the status, some condition is going to change. Um, and so therefore, that's why he says you get Malkut. Now, Rav is going to challenge Rav Chista. Right? So according to you, right, who says we don't use the principle of Ho'il, then how come somebody is allowed to bake from Yom Tov to Shabbat, right? Which we know is something that everybody does, right? There's no way we would be able to eat, basically. Amar he says to Rabbi Mishum, and he says, no, that's why we do an Erev Tavshilin, because you're really not allowed to do that. So that's why we have to make 
this special Erev right? Which is you basically take, you know, usually we do it now like on matzo or challah roll and an egg. And you're basically saying, I'm preparing this food now and you have to make sure that you eat it, you know, on that Shabbat. Umishume rube tefshilin, shrinan isure do right? So Rabbi basically says, wait, so you're basically telling me that by doing this Erev tefshilin, this is what's going to allow you to do this do raisa. You'd rather not hold by the principle of ho'il, but you're just going to say you do this Erev tefshilin, then somehow magically baking or preparing food in a way that you're normally not allowed to, that's going to be used for, at, you know, for after Yom Tov, in this case being on Shabbat, that you're going to be allowed to do. Um, so he says to him, So he says, look, do writes under biblical law, you can actually prepare what you need to for Shabbat and Yom Tov. But it was the rabbis who made a decree against it, which again, is fascinating, right? That we know that there was really, according to biblical law, it was okay to do, but Chazal come and they actually change it. Because what were they concerned about? They were concerned that if, you know, bakers would say like, oh, well, if I'm allowed to bake from Yom Tov to Shabbos, maybe I'm actually allowed to bake from Yom Tov to, um, to uh, a regular weekday, right? And therefore, the rabbis made that you had to do an Erev Tavshilin. Why? Right? So that basically there's a sign that people have to do to remind them only cooking Yom Tov to Shabbos is allowed, but not Yom Tov to a weekday. So Rav Chisa has a totally different way of being able to work this case out and doesn't have to rely on the principle of six. And then Rav is going to come, and just for the sake of time, I'm not going to uh, read the whole thing out, but he comes up with the second case, which is like, let's say you have an animal that's about to die on Yom Tov, and so you basically want to shecht it quickly so it doesn't die. Once it dies and you didn't shecht it, you can't use the meat, right? So you're going to shecht it, so this way you can use it. And so basically, you need to have enough time where he could presumably eat a kazayas of the roasted meat. In other words, so there's enough time to sort of cook the meat and to eat it, but you don't actually have to uh, you don't actually have to eat it. And again, that's using the principle of, uh, of, of, of ho'il. And Rav Chis is going to come back and say, no, he's actually allowed to shechta because of hefseid, right? Because he would actually um, lose, uh, he actually would lose some money here. So, uh, you know, this principle of ho'il, we've seen it now, this is the second time in Masach Um, But I think it introduces a, a really interesting principle into halakha, right? Which is, Often when we paskin, right, we're taking the particular set of circumstances as they are and are presented in front of us at that time. And the idea of whole is, do we need to consider what might actually change in the future? And Rab is obviously saying, yes, we can consider that and it may change, therefore, what our halacha will be. And Rav Chis is saying, no, we, we, we can't. And I, and I sort of see both sides of it, because I do think that on the one hand, there's maybe, you know, a certain set of circumstances that could change that's reasonable to assume this, there's a likelihood that this could happen. On the other hand, I could see Rav Chisa's position because once you start invoking Ho'il, there's kind of no end to it, right? Like what you could probably always come up with different sets of circumstances, uh, you know, under which, uh, you know, the, the, the scenario which you're currently dealing with in the present could actually change in the future. And there sort of would be no end or no ability to really come up with a final halachic psak. I find it fascinating and and almost disturbing, I would say. No, that's not fair. But the, how, 
how the discussion that we begin in the right the Mishnah is talking about Pesach, right? Very localized topic, and then the Hoel like kind of springboards and goes so far afield into a much more general, much more abstract conversation, which I think is very valuable and interesting. And of course, the Gemara does this all the time. But I feel like this phrasing of Hoel does it more so, perhaps, than even usual. I, I'm not. I, I think I thought that the last time also we encountered Hoel. That the that this particular logic is used to bring much more disparate elements into um, into the local conversation. Yeah, I think that's a good way of of thinking about it. It's not just about sort of. It's different than sometimes some of the cases we see, which sort of is more like testing boundaries. But this is really thinking something through. Like, yes, this may be true, but like this really, the circumstances could really change around it. And do we need to consider those things when we're really thinking through an entire halachic scenario? So I, I guess my question to the list, you know, to the learners are, you know, do you want to be on Team Hoyle or not? And again, I, I <laughs> both sides sort of appeal to me. I'm not sure where I feel about it yet. I, I don't think you have to choose. Okay, that's also fair. <laughs> <laughs> we can give you the the what's it called the the benefit of discretion okay that's all that that's also fair and and i i'm curious to see how you know this concept plays out and where we're going to see it again well that's our DAP discussion for the day rank us review us on all major podcasts thank you to robin e. michelle farber for hosting us on the hadron website let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of the uh discussions and elements brought up by the mishnah presented on this page on our talking talmud facebook page and until tomorrow, go and learn.